Over the course of 11 sessions, we have studied how the mission of the early church unfolded in this New Testament book, the book of Acts. From a small band of Jewish disciples all gathered together in one place, to numerous multi-ethnic communities of Christians spread across the Mediterranean world, we have witnessed the challenges that these early Christians faced from external resistance and persecution to internal conflict and disagreement. And we've heard the voices of some of these early Christians as they boldly and unapologetically spread the message that they were given, the message of a crucified and resurrected Messiah. Or as Peter put it in his Pentecost sermon, that this Jesus whom you crucified, God has raised from the dead and made him Lord and Christ. Again and again throughout the book of Acts, this message is repeated by Peter, by Philip, by Stephen, by Paul, to Jewish crowds, synagogue attendees, Ethiopian officials, Roman pagans, and philosophers alike. And it's not until the end of Acts, however, that this message makes it all the way up the social ladder of the ancient world and reaches the ears of Roman governors and kings. So that's what we're going to focus on in this final session, on Luke's account of what happens when Paul comes face to face with the ruling powers of the ancient world. What does the Apostle Paul say when he has the ear of a king? And what does this teach us about the ongoing mission of the church, especially in its relationship to political power? Now, before jumping into Paul's speech, it's probably helpful to say something about the context of what's going on in this chapter, chapter 26 of Acts. You'll remember from what we talked about last time that Paul has been arrested, and after his arrest, he's brought to the Roman governor of Judea, a man named Antonius Felix, who was going to hear Paul's case and hear his accusers. But even though Felix listened to both Paul and his Jewish accusers, he never really rules one way or another. He doesn't side with the accusers, but he also doesn't free Paul either. Luke tells us that he was, Felix was holding out hope that he would be paid, that he would be bribed by Paul or by some of his comrades to release him. And he keeps Paul in prison for two years until he's replaced by Emperor Nero with a new governor of Judea, a man named Porcius Festus. And we don't know a lot about Festus. The ancient Jewish historian Josephus, he describes Festus as an honest and conscientious ruler who wanted to keep the Jews in Judea pacified. And so Festus tries to get Paul to agree to go with these Jewish accusers back to Jerusalem and be tried there. But Paul refuses, and Paul exercises his right as a Roman citizen to demand a trial before Caesar himself. Now, right about this time, when Paul's demanding a trial with Caesar, Festus is visited by King Agrippa, 
King Agrippa II. He's the grandson of King Herod. King Agrippa rules over a small kingdom. He's a sort of client king of the Roman Empire. He rules over a small kingdom that's northeast of Judea. Festus knew that Agrippa was well acquainted with and understood Jewish religion and customs, much better than Festus did. So he asked Agrippa while he was visiting him to hear Paul out so that Festus would know what to say about Paul when he sent him on to Caesar. So that's the background of what's going on here in Acts chapter 26. That's how Paul gets his opportunity to speak before a king and Roman governor together. And the question is, once he gets this opportunity, what does he say? A first thing to note about this speech is its tone. We've seen this before in Athens, how Paul can adapt his message and the manner of his speaking to his audience. And with this speech, it's pretty clear that Paul is, he's pulling out all of his rhetorical stops. As the Catholic historian and New Testament scholar Luke Timothy Johnson puts it, this speech is the most elegantly constructed of Paul's discourses with exactly the sort of elevated diction, subtle syntax, and wordplay that delighted Hellenistic rhetoricians. So rhetorically, what Paul's doing is impressive here. And it's obvious that he's adapting his message and the tone of his message to his audience. But it's not just his tone. Paul also adapts the content of his message, what he has to say to the ears of Agrippa and Festus. And the best way to see this is by paying attention to just how often the issue of authority comes up in what Paul says before the king. Uh, for instance, note the way that Paul talks about his early persecution of Christians and his journey to Damascus. Now, in the original telling of this story in Acts chapter 9, when we read it, Luke says that Paul receives letters from the high priest that allows him to go to, uh, from Jerusalem to Damascus. And then in Acts chapter 22, when Paul's recounting this story again before a Jewish audience, he uses that same phrase that he talks about receiving letters from the chief priest. But it's interesting, when he's addressing Festus and Agrippa, he uses a little bit different wording. In verse 10, he says that he imprisoned Christians after receiving, and he uses the word authority, exousia in Greek, he, after he received authority from the chief priests. And then again in verse 12, he says, in this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. Why this subtle change in wording. Is this just a coincidence? Paul's just saying it a little bit differently? Well, maybe it's because Paul is drawing attention to what he thinks is a really crucial point. His story is an illustration of a man under authority. And the question that he wants Agrippa and Festus to ask is, who is the one that has true authority? And this focus on authority continues with what Paul says next when he describes his experience on the Damascus Road. 
Now, again, in order to, to notice what's going on here, you got to keep in mind that we've already heard this story twice, once in Acts chapter 9 and then once when Paul tells it in Acts 22. So we can compare what he's saying now to what he said then. Now, several things actually are different in Paul's telling of the story this time around. Now, first, when Paul describes what the voice from heaven first says to him, he adds an extra phrase. I don't know if you caught it, if you read this, but there's an extra phrase there. Saul, Saul, the voice says, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. That sentence, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. That's new to this time around in telling the story. And this phrase about kicking against the goads, kicking against what would be like a cattle prod, it's actually a fairly common Greek phrase. And it's a way to describe a person's futile attempt to resist a stronger power. Why are you resisting this power that is clearly much stronger than you? So it isn't just that Paul is persecuting Jesus. His persecution is a ridiculous and futile attempt to resist what this voice is telling him is an authority much greater than himself. And as you read on, you'll realize that this little phrase isn't the only thing that's different between Paul's description of this event and the way it was described in Acts 9 and 22. In both of those earlier occasions, the voice tells Paul to go to Ananias, where he'll receive further instruction. This time, Paul doesn't really mention Ananias at all. Instead, he describes his encounter with this powerful voice from heaven as an act of direct commissioning. The voice of Jesus, which comes from heaven, tells Paul to get up and stand on his feet because he, Paul, is being given a mission as both a witness and a servant to bring a message of salvation to both Jews and Gentiles. Now, of course, none of this is totally new. We already know that Paul was blinded on the road to Damascus. We know that he heard the voice of Jesus appointed. We know that he was appointed as a missionary to the Gentiles. But these subtle differences in the way that Paul tells the story now, now that he's standing before a king, from his repeated use of the word authority to this added phrase about kicking against the goads, to his description of the way that this this authoritative voice imposes a mission on him and calls him a servant. All of these subtle differences are important. All of it is a way of focusing attention on the fact that Paul's experience on the Damascus Road was ultimately about a clash of authorities. Paul thought, Paul thought he'd been given authority but he had no idea what true authority, true power really was. Not until he was knocked down and given a mission by the one and true king. And when I say one true king, I don't just mean Paul's king. Remember, when early Christians talk about Jesus being Lord, they're not saying that Jesus is their personal Lord. They're saying that Jesus is Lord of all, full stop. 
And that's what Paul is saying too. After he describes what happened on the road to him, he then goes on and tells King Agrippa. Here's what he says. I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem and throughout all the region on Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. So that's Paul's message. Not just that he needed to repent and recognize Jesus as Lord, but that everyone else everywhere needs to do the same thing. And you know, that's a risky thing to say when you're standing in the presence of a king. Kings are used to being honored and obeyed. They're used to people in front of them acting deferential. They're not used to being told that there is a higher authority that they need to submit to and obey. And it's pretty clear that Festus and Agrippa, they get what Paul is saying. Festus tells Paul that he's crazy, and Agrippa kind of laughs it off, saying something to the effect of, are you serious, Paul? Are you really standing there telling me that I, King Agrippa, need to follow this Jesus like you do? That I am supposed to recognize this other king? That's not Agrippa's precise words, but that's basically what he's saying. But Paul, Paul doesn't give in to Agrippa's laughing and mockery here. His response to Agrippa is simple, but very clear. I would to God, he says, that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. You know, when I read this exchange between Paul and, and this king, it's hard for me not to think about the, the perennial question that people are always asking about the relationship between the church and the state. How does the mission of the church address those and speak to those who are in political power? Now, there's no indication in Acts chapter 26 that Festus or Agrippa had any intention of heeding Paul's words and submitting themselves to the authority of Jesus. But that is certainly what Paul is asking of them. And presumably, it's what he planned to tell Caesar as well. And it's also true that, you know, regardless of what Festus and Agrippa did, there were plenty of later kings and rulers who did repent of their idolatry and their autonomy and swear their allegiance to Christ. The history of Western Europe is littered with stories of kings converting to Christ and bending the knee, showing submission to Jesus as the one true king. I think this isn't to say that those kings in Western Europe always succeeded in doing what Paul said, doing good deeds in keeping with their repentance. But they did acknowledge that there was a king greater than themselves. And as the Christian political philosopher Oliver O'Donovan says, the rulers of this world have bowed before Christ's throne. But, he says, and this is important, but the relationship between the church's mission and Christian political order should not be misconstrued it is not, as is often suggested, that Christian political order is a project of the church's mission, 
either as an end in itself or as a means to the further missionary end. The church's one project is to witness to the kingdom of God. Now, as we see in the book of Acts, the preaching of the gospel, this witness to the kingdom of God, it is the announcement that Jesus is Lord. And that has direct consequences for politics, political order, and political leaders. You know, the, the idea that we sometimes hear today, that the separation between church and state means that these two are simply totally separate realms, that the church simply has nothing to say to the state and is only concerned with private individual religious belief, that is not true according to the book of Acts. That's not how Acts portrays the, the message of the church. At the same time, in order for Christians to stay true to their mission, it is vital, it is important, as Oliver O'Donovan says, that we don't misunderstand this relationship and start thinking that, that the church's mission, that this church in Acts, that what they were given was a mission to create a political order, that that is their project. Anytime that the church becomes too overly identified with any specific political power, be it a king or a political party, it runs the risk of losing its own distinctive voice, of losing the original message that it's been given. Now, Paul's message to Agrippa was simple. Christ is king. And you too, as king, must bow before him. And that is still the message of the church. That's still the message that we are called to speak today. No matter who the ruler is or which party he or she may belong to, our message is the same. The risen Jesus is king. He is the true authority. And we, all of us, are called to continually repent and submit ourselves in faith to his rule. You know, it's very interesting how Luke ends the book of Acts. Uh, we know from other historical accounts that both Peter and Paul were ultimately martyred for their faith. But you know, Luke, Luke says nothing about that. He never even mentions that Paul dies. All he tells us in the final verses of Acts is what Paul was doing in his last years in Rome. Here's how he ends the book. Paul lived there in Rome two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Now, why does Luke in the book of Acts that way? Have you ever wondered that? Why not mention that Paul was martyred? Well, I don't claim to know precisely what was in Luke's mind, but I think that we can make a fairly confident guess about why he ends Acts this way. Luke doesn't tell us about Paul's death because Acts isn't really about Paul or about Peter or about any of the other disciples that are mentioned. As I said in the very first session, Acts is a story about what God is doing by his spirit through the church. And that's why Luke ends the way that he does. 
It's why he ends with the scene of Paul preaching the kingdom of God, talking about the Lord Jesus Christ with boldness. Because the story of Acts isn't over. Luke just ends abruptly because the story's not finished. God has not completed his mission. The church is not done. You and I, we are a part of this story. We are the next chapter. So may we be faithful as we continue advancing this mission and this story forward. <laughs>